So this morning we're starting a new series uh, called Deconstructed. Deconstructed. And uh, this morning's uh, title is actually Humility. Humility. And uh, as we kind of uh, get into this new series, just so you kind of have a heads up and an awareness, we're continuing our journey through 1 Corinthians if you've been with us for any amount of time. And so this series actually concentrates on 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 beginning at verse 2 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 12. And so this morning we're going to focus in on uh, one uh, section of, of scripture, one pericope, if you will, one complete thought. Um, but the series as a whole is, I think, kind of self-explanatory, deconstructed. When you take something apart, uh, when you look at its ingredients or what it consists of, what it's made up of. And so we're going to be talking in a lot of ways about how when you look at your life and you kind of deconstruct it, you might assume that the certain ingredients that you need um, might be... Uh, uh, you know, uh, independence or strength or, um, you know, individual decision-making. And reality, as you deconstruct that, it might actually lead to uh, humility, servanthood, and so on and so forth. And so we're, we're talking about kind of being deconstructed. And uh, you, we'll get more into it as we kind of go through the series, but I wanted to give you a little bit of an, a general overview. We're going to uh, read the first section of Scripture, and it's actually a, a kind of fun one at face value because... Um, well, we'll read it, and you'll be like, what in the world are we going to talk about in that? So uh, the section heading in your Bibles uh, is head coverings, to give you a hint. So um, you can feel free to read along if you want. Things will be projected on the screen, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and read out of the Word this morning. So let's go ahead and read, uh, beginning at verse 2, going right through to verse 16. Uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians. He helped establish this church, and so he's writing this letter, and um, he says this, Now I commend you. Uh, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it, is the shame, sorry, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to not cover his head because he's beautifully shaven. Oh, sorry. Went on a little bit. <laughs> Lost myself there. Anyway, um, <laughs> distracted my wife too. So in either case, um, since he, <laughs> that's so ridiculous that I literally interjected that into scripture. I apologize. Beginning at verse seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from women, but women from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in, Lord, uh, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You're like, what? I don't want to. I don't want to talk about that. That's so weird. What are we talking about? And we're going to unpack it. So before we do that, let's just open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we kind of lay the busyness of our life, maybe even our fatigue, as we've lost this hour of sleep, and um, we just set all those distractions aside. We lean in right now. We pray that uh, you would speak to us with clarity, that you would um, show us who you are, that um, as we kind of deconstruct or look at the ingredients of our lives, Lord God, that um, you would speak with clarity and we declare ourselves available. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. So um, there might be some preconceived ideas about what it is I'm going to talk about. And before I get into that, first I want to let you know your preconceived ideas, um, unless you've done extensive study into the culture of Corinth, are probably misfounded. Um, but as I was digging into this text, uh, something came to mind as I was considering this title of humility and this reality of kind of uh, deconstructing ourselves and looking at the ingredients or the components of what make us up. And I was reminded of a, a job that I had in college. Uh, in my undergrad, I was in um, Bible college, and I was... Uh, a server at a high-end restaurant in um, a really uh, nice mall. And um, it was the type of high-end restaurant that had servers and servers' assistants and uh, cloth tablecloths and um, people that parked your car. And it was just a very uh, high-end type environment. And we were, uh, we were there going about our typical routine. And as we're going through our typical routine, uh, I noticed something as I was approaching one of the um, cash registers. As I walked up to one of the cash registers, I looked down and there was a $20 bill on the ground. And there was a server that was walking away. And um, I thought, oh my gosh, he dropped that 20. So I bent over, I picked up the $20 bill and I started to walk after him and a manager, so there were different types of managers uh, in this restaurant, and, but one of the floor managers walked over and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And I was like, I'm gonna give him this 20, I think he dropped it, he goes, put it back. I was like, what? He goes, just put it back. I was like, on the floor? He's like, yeah, put it back on the floor. I was like, okay. So I put the $20, on the floor, $20 bill on the floor, and uh, the moment that I do that, I start to walk away, and as I'm walking away, another server goes up, and he comes over, he grabs the $20 bill, and he puts it right next to the cash register, and uh, the manager comes over and takes the $20 bill and kind of slaps him on the back. He goes, I'll take care of it. So I didn't think much of it. Okay, whatever. And uh, the next day, one of the things that would happen is we'd meet out on kind of this, um, for lack of a better word, almost like this porch type area uh, that overlooked kind of the mall. And when we would sit there, what would happen is uh, the chef would stand there and then all of the different uh, meals would come out for the night and he would talk about the ingredients and we'd all have to kind of take notes in case people ask questions. We would try the food. He would complain about the consistency of something and take it off the menu that night. And it was kind of that type of place, you know. And uh, so we're going through this whole thing and then all of a sudden, Manders steps forward and says, 
Um, hey, I just want to, I want to recognize somebody today before we start. And, you know, one of the things we want to start doing is just really recognizing when people uh, are part of the team and really uplift us. And so I want to point somebody out. So he points out the guy that picks up the dollar bill, uh, the $20 bill and put it next to the cash register. He said, there was a $20 bill. And he goes, I'll be honest with you. It was my $20 bill. I put it on the floor as a test. And he said, and the honesty of this man right here for this team, he grabbed that $20 bill, he put it next to the cash register, and I just want to recognize it. Can we give him a round of applause? So everybody's like clapping. He's like, it's that kind of honesty we want to reward. So he gives him the $20 bill, and then he gives him a, a gift card, and, then, and gives him a high-end bottle of wine, because it was like that type of Italian restaurant. So he gives him this, this bottle of wine that was worth a couple hundred dollars. It was like a big deal. So everybody's like, oh my gosh, and they're like clapping and stuff. And he goes, and as we're kind of on this note, I want to point out something else. So they're like, all right. Says, Claude, I'm like, yes. He goes, he tried to steal that $20 bill. <laughs> I was like... What? <laughs> and, and he's like, and so I think to solidify the team, I think it's important that maybe you apologize to everybody on the team. I was like, uh, wow. So I appreciate you publicly calling me out, you know? And ultimately, I'm not one bent towards embarrassment, typically, but it was one of those moments that I was so derailed by the moment. Obviously, I knew my intentions. This was a complete misunderstanding. I tried to explain that to him in the heat of the shift, and he didn't want to hear it. He just wanted me to put the $20. So there's all of this kind of rising up in me. I want to defend myself. I want to explain myself. And everybody's just looking at me, and I'm thinking, half this group of people know me and know that that doesn't line up with my character at all. The other people, I barely know. And they're like, mm, so turns out Claude's a thief, eh? You know, like, and so I'm standing up there completely uh, embarrassed and taken back. I want to defend myself. It feels like a huge injustice. And, uh, and he's like, we're waiting. And I was like, wow. And I literally verbally said, wow. And I was like, well, um, you know, there's part of me that kind of wants to explain the situation. And uh, he goes, we don't have time before shift. I asked you to apologize to the team. I was like, right. Sure. I was like, okay, well, um, I'm sorry for what is clearly a misunderstanding. And before I can even say misunderstanding, he goes, all right, thanks, I appreciate that. And then he just goes into how we have to be a team, and, we have to, and I was like, what a jerk. And I'm sitting there so frustrated and so annoyed, and I want to scream at the top of my lungs, this isn't fair, you've misrepresented me, you've questioned my character, like, I am so angry, and yet I feel so defensive, and I know, like, the more defensive you act, the more you just confirm everyone's worst assumptions. Like, hmm, there's little thief Claude trying to defend himself, you know? It's 20 bucks, Claude, come on, you know? Like, are you really that hard off? Like, I'm a college student. And so I'm sitting there frustrated and annoyed, and the thing that I want you to consider this morning is a question that I think we've all said either out loud or in our hearts at some point or another. Why does life seem so unfair? Why does life seem so unfair? There are so many moments in our lives where, where it's like you want to just stand up and say, no, that's not what actually happened. I'm being misrepresented. The situation is being misrepresented. This is a misunderstanding. You see, we know our motives inside. We know our heart. We know our motives and we don't want to be misunderstood or misrepresented. In fact, 
you know, some of you probably feel tension for me about that story. It's like you want to be like, come on, let's make that right. Did you ever go back and tell everyone? You know, because we, we want to be understood. But at the same time, we want freedom to do what we want. We, we have to display sort of this humility, and yet we have this tension of feeling like we're wronged. And all that we can really articulate is that it seems unfair. It's complicated, right? Especially if you're human, which I think most of us in the room today are. Because whether or not you're a Christian, this isn't inherently a, a Christian issue. This isn't like a Jesus problem. This is a humanity problem. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, like it or not, we struggle with wanting things our way, with being represented properly. And now maybe you're the type of person um, that defaults to others. So maybe you're tempted uh, to kind of distance yourself from this concept uh, because oftentimes you uh, don't let your opinion be known. Uh, maybe you default to other people's preferences. But here's the deal. Whether or not you're verbal about being wronged or wanting to impose your way, the fact is inside of you as a human being, there is a sense that says, I want this to be clarified. I want people to know what it is that's happened. I want things my way. I have a preference. I have an opinion. You can go through the list. And like I said, if you don't verbalize that, I mean, all we have to do is turn on Netflix or Hulu or the television or DVR or however you function. If, if we put something on TV, you have an opinion. It's funny, I, I have three children and they all articulate their opinions differently. <laughs> the one that is, uh, is most impressive or easiest for me to deal with is the way that my oldest communicates her opinion. Um, if she doesn't uh, like what's happening on Netflix, if all of a sudden there's a, a movie or a cartoon or something that's selected, she just quietly gets up and walks away. <laughs> and I'm like, you're my favorite. You know, she, you know, I just, no, but like, she's just, she's one of those people that's like, listen, I'm not going to articulate it. Like, it's, it's either not worth the fight, it's not worth the argument. I'm not saying it's a good quality. I'm just saying it's a great quality for other people in the room because she doesn't articulate. She's just like, okay, whatever. I don't care. Fine. She still has an opinion, but her opinion is silent. She just leaves the room. I think for some of us that probably resonates this morning where you're like, well, I just default to what others want. But it's not because you don't have an opinion. It's not because you don't want to defend yourself. It's just somewhere inside you've said, it's not worth it. It's not worth the argument. It's not worth the fight. And so there's two things that I kind of want to articulate as we go into this concept of humility because we have a lot of things that are kind of happening that I'm articulating as far as tension of being mis misrepresented, uh, having an opinion, wanting things your way. And so I, I want to talk about kind of the, the common fallen condition that we have as human beings. It's two things, pride and rebellion. Pride says my way. Rebellion says just not your way, right? Pride says I want it my way. Rebellion says we're not doing it your way. And so all of us are bent towards one, the other, or both. So let's be cautious this morning not to simply look at this text at face value. If you look at this text at face value, you may be tempted to reduce this text to simply being about covering your heads, clothing, roles of women and men, and uh, you'll miss the point altogether. 
In order to, to have some context this morning, we have to do some cultural heavy lifting. And uh, I, I investigated a couple of different sources on this, several different sources on this to understand the culture of Corinth, to really understand what it is that Paul is articulating. Because what he's saying here is ultimately misunderstood if you don't understand the culture of Corinth and why he's communicating what it is that he's communicating to this young church in Corinth. So let's start to unpack that a little bit. During this time in history, Augustus Caesar is trying to actually solidify all Roman colonies and Roman outposts to become imperial cults. All right, that sounds like a Star Trek word, right? <laughs> da, 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 the imperial cult, you know. Um, and so what it really means is an imperial cult is one that believes that the emperor is deity. The emperor is God. And so Augustus Caesar is like leaning into this hardcore and he's saying, you know what, guys? I might look like a dude, but I'm God. Okay, And so one of the ways he's doing that is he starts um, a kind of propaganda campaign. And the thing that's amazing is that back in those days, uh, the way that you communicated propaganda, especially if you were an emperor, is you had statues made. Like now we send out like flyers or, you know, blast social media or something. He's like, I will build marble statues. Like, wow, that's intense. So the typical rendering of Caesar or an emperor involves an uncovered head, with a wreath uh, almost looking like a crown, okay? And that might sound familiar to you if you think about any um, maybe statues you've seen of one of the Caesars. Uh, But Augustus Caesar, in this season, he begins to, to have statues built with his toga over his head. And you can actually see um, examples of this that have survived history. And so this propaganda campaign, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate to the people of that day that, um, that he is deity by, by having the toga go over the top of his head. And the reason being is your toga was never worn over your head unless you were a pagan priest presiding over a spiritual ritual. That was one of the things that happened is you'd pull the toga, the back part of your toga over your head, and it indicated, it signified that you were a pagan priest overseeing some type of uh, idol worship or some type of ritual ceremony. And so in Caesar, having his toga over his head, he's communicating to the then world that I don't only preside over this realm, I actually preside over even the spiritual realms. And so I am, in fact, God. I preside over over even pagan worship. So one of the things that kind of happens as a result of this is the social elite, the more influential, uh, the higher socioeconomic class of Corinth sees Caesar with, their, with the toga over his head and they go, hey, you know what? Um, that's pretty cool. We should start doing that. And so he starts, a, he's a trendsetter. <laughs> so the social elite start covering their heads with togas. They start pulling their toga kind of up and covering their head. It becomes kind of this clothing trend to signify status. So we have two issues in society then. If a man had his head covered, it meant one of two things. He was either socially elite or he was a pagan priest. And so what's happening is people are coming in to this church in Corinth And the social elite have their heads covered because it's the thing to do. And so we look at verse 4. Paul says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered 
dishonors his head. We're going to explain about what dishonors his head means in just a second. But he's pointing out a problem culturally that's happening in the church in Corinth. He's saying, why are you guys walking in with your togas over your head and praying and prophesying? It's confusing. You're either saying, I'm socially elite and I'm creating division. I'm more important than the rest of you little peons. Or you look like a stinking pagan priest. That's super confusing. Why are you doing that is what Paul is articulating here. He's talking about misrepresenting his head, a, uh, a metaphorical, not physical head. So it's a reference to the prior verse. So we have to back up in order to understand what it means by dishonoring his head. He's not saying you dishonor your physical head. The beginning part of verse 3 says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So Paul is saying, when you cover your head and you pray and you prophesy, you're misrepresenting Christ. You're communicating to the people in the room that you're more important than they are, socioeconomically. You're, or, worst yet, you're communicating people in the room that, hey, this is kind of like a pagan cult. Welcome. And you're not worshiping a false god. You're worshiping the one true God. So Paul is addressing something head-on that's an issue based on the culture. Then he, you see, in verse 3, head is interpreted as source, or some commentators say representative contact person who focuses its identity. That's going to sound a little bit like, oh, can I track with that? I'll read it one more time and then I'll explain. Representative contact person who focuses its identity. So let's read verse 3 in its entirety and then we'll get a little bit deeper. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what Paul is saying is, men, realize that your source of identity is Christ. Women, your source of identity is your husband. And we're going to unpack that because you might be like, wait a second, my identity's in Christ too. Why would my identity be in a man? That's not fair. Bear with me. In the same way, Christ's source of identity is God. All right? So what he's saying is, men, you need to communicate that you are exclusively Christ's. And then he's saying, women, you need to communicate that you are exclusively your husbands. See, that's a lot different, right? When you realize that it's a, a, it's a definition of exclusivity. It's an explanation of saying, listen, the people in this culture need to realize that you are exclusively your husbands. And that might sound like he's answering a question that maybe isn't being asked, but we have to continue to lean a little bit in to the culture here. We're starting to, to see what's being said, but we might still make the mistake of assuming that women are being diminished. And in fact, he is confirming and he's actually elevating the role of women in that culture because he's saying, when you pray and prophesy, he's communicating that when women publicly pray and prophesy, he's putting them in the same category of men that are praying and prophesying. So let's look at the culture again and we'll talk a little bit more about that. 
In Corinth, uh, women were married, and I've, I've unpacked this a little bit in the last series, uh, so I'm going to just kind of hit the top of the iceberg here. Women were married around the age of 14 in that culture. And so uh, once they were married, uh, it's the reverse of what happens in our society. In our society, you come down sometimes with a veil over your head, and then at some point the veil is lifted, and then you remove the veil. In that society, a veil was placed on you once you were married. You were communicating to the culture that you were married by wearing a head covering of some sort. And uh, Roman wives were modest and could only uncover their heads when they were in their homes. So out in public, they had to have their head covered to signify to the world that they're married, that they're exclusively their husbands. But in their homes, they could take their head coverings off. Here's something else that you need to understand. It's a bit crude, but you need to understand it to get the context. If you went to a Roman home, slaves were owned in that home, and slaves were offered as opportunity for casual sex if the male guests were desiring that. I'm not talking about Christian Roman homes. I'm talking about Roman society provided slaves for casual sex. And the way that you would know that they were a slave and that they were being offered for that is that their heads would be shaved. Women's heads would be shaved, signifying that they were a slave, and if they were present during dinner, then they were being offered. Now, in Corinth, it's a hub of commerce, all right? And so in this hub of commerce, there's freed women and there's foreigners that are kind of converging into this metropolis, this booming metropolis of Corinth. And so what happens in that society is that these foreigners and these freed women are actually being hired by elite men, wealthy men are hiring them to be prostitutes at their dinner parties. The reason why they're hiring them is because their heads weren't shaved. And so the way that you would know that they were being offered as such is when you would go to the home, their heads would be uncovered. They'd have long hair, they'd be adults, but their heads would be uncovered. And because they're not the family of the home, that's not the woman of the home, you realize these are being offered for you. They were referred to as banquet women, banquet women. So there's this cultural tension happening. And so now let's take all of that kind of cultural knowledge and look at the fact that the church in Corinth was meeting in a home. It's a home church. That's what was happening. They were meeting in homes. And there's two problems here. Some of it is like, you're already getting it. Like, oh. One is that the woman of the house is allowed to have her head uncovered. It's her home. The other thing is that the guests that are invited are known by this homeowner. The people that are known by the homeowner, their wives are permitted to uncover their heads if they desire because their husbands aren't going to confuse them. They're part of the same socioeconomic class. And so to them, they can distinguish between banquet women and a married woman. So there's this dynamic happening in this early church in Corinth where I'm hosting the church, 
And so because I'm hosting the church, I'm wealthy because I have a home big enough to host all of you. And so my wife has her head uncovered. And if you're friends with me, then that means you're wealthy too. And so you're permitted to have your heads uncovered as well. So once again, there's this socioeconomic divide. There's this division that's present in the local church right there. But the second issue, the greater issue, is that to someone coming into this moment, this dynamic of a church, they know it to be a public event. And at public event, when a woman is standing in front of the room with her head uncovered and she's praying, she's prophesying, someone's going to say, what is that banquet woman doing up there praying? What kind of place am I in? First, the dude gets up with his head covered, like this is some type of pagan ritual. Now, a woman with her head uncovered is praying. This is ridiculous, right? It's a misrepresentation of God. And so, verses 5 through 6 says this, but every wife who prays or prophesies, in other words, women have a right to pray and prophesy, with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Dishonors who? Dishonors her husband. Why? Because it's being misconstrued that her exclusivity isn't to her husband. And since it is the same as if her head were shaven, he's saying people think she's a prostitute. Her head's uncovered. It's the same as if her head was shaved. So verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then you know what? She should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, you know what? Let her cover her head. Paul's kind of calling this bluff. You know what? You have this freedom. You have this ability. You don't want to be misunderstood. You have a right to uncover your head in your own home. Fine. Why not just shave it? You got freedom. Shave your head. It's this amazing bluff where he's saying, if, if you really don't care and you're so free and you're so individualistic, shave your head. You might as well. Because that's how much you're misrepresenting the situation. I love that Paul affirms women's rights to pray, lead, and prophesy. But it's not okay when their freedom misrepresents their marriage covenant or distracts from the gospel. Right? That's the lesson to learn here this morning is that we want so bad to impose our rights or impose what it is that we desire, what it is we have opinion about, what it is that's being misunderstood. Like, hold on a second. I'm not a banquet woman. How about this? How about I get up in front of the room before I pray or prophesy, I just tell everybody, hey, welcome to my home, not a banquet prostitute, you know, like, and Paul's like, are you kidding me? Like, what you? And, and to, to the banquet woman that's been invited to the church, like, well, I am. Like, <laughs> am I not welcome here? And so he's saying, what are you doing? Where are your head covering? Is it that big of a deal? Just put your head covering on so that you don't misrepresent Christ, so you don't distract from the gospel. He's saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Verses 11 and 12, he says, nevertheless, that's an important word here, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For, if, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. 
what I love about this is that Paul is saying, if you misunderstood everything that I said up until this point, nevertheless, let me make this clear. Woman was created out of man, but every man since then has come from a woman. Let me make it more clear here. We're all from God. I love that he's just leveling the playing field. He's saying, don't misunderstand what it is that I'm saying. Don't be confused. We all represent God. We all represent God. And then verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, to bring disruption, to impose their will, to be filled with pride, to be rebellious, to be contentious. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Pride and rebellion lead to segregation, confusion, and misrepresentation rather than unification. We might just look at this and say, wait, head covered, why does that matter? It's, it's this amazing picture of a culture that's focusing on secondary things. And Paul is saying, are you about representing who God is and the truth of the gospel? If you are, then humble yourself. Not only give up your rights, which he addressed earlier, but now he's drilling it down even further and saying, listen, just humble yourself. You see, one of the ingredients of life lived to the fullest when deconstructed when taken apart, is humility. It's counterintuitive, right? Because, again, we're not wired towards humility. We're wired towards false humility. That's always fun. Oh, I'm terrible at that. <laughs> no, you're great. Yeah, My favorite is like, oh, I look so fat in this, don't I? I, I was not a good teenager <laughs> because in my teenage years, I'd be like, yeah, you look a little heavy. I mean, but and they're like, what? I'm like, you said it. I don't, I just agree. And they're like, oh my gosh. They run out. <laughs> you can pray for my wife, but <clears throat> I'm just bent towards truth, unfortunately, or fortunately. We are bent as human beings, every single one of us, whether we verbalize it or internalize it, we are bent towards pride and rebellion. So how can that change? How does it change? I mean, do we just snap fingers and say, you know what? Time to be humble. I go to church now. I'm no longer prideful. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. You're the only one in the room. This is how we change it. We speak the gospel to ourselves. And for some of you this morning, you might say, speak the gospel? How do I even... Where do I begin? What does that look like? It looks something like this. Jesus, I want my way. I can feel pride rising up in me. But Lord, you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross for me. Will you do a work that only you can do in my heart and mind that I may represent you well for your glory? You see, if we can get to a place where we can understand the gospel to the depths where we can connect it to our lives, it becomes the only center that matters 
And so when we deconstruct everything, the only thing to start with is the truth of who God is. He's not an ingredient that we add with humility. A little bit of humility and a little bit of Jesus. No, no, no. Humility is impossible without Jesus at the core. And so deconstruction begins with Christ at the center. And so I often say, the text requires something from us this morning. And I think if I would have read the text and then said, so how does that affect you? You may be like, I don't know. I have to cover my head or I shouldn't cover my, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. But after we look at what it is that Paul is saying, the question I want you to leave this place considering, the application to consider is how am I exemplifying Christ's character and humility? As you leave this place this morning, I want you to be able to contemplate the core of what Paul is really saying here. Is, are, are, you, are you misrepresenting Christ? How am I exemplifying Christ's character and humility? And so for some of us this morning, you might say, um, I'm not even sure what it is to do or how to begin because maybe you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you haven't started with the gospel in the center. And so this morning, maybe your application is saying, I want to ask Jesus to come and be the Lord and leader of my life. I'm going to humble myself. And my application is to begin a relationship with Christ. And for you this morning, if that's you, it's, it's a simple prayer that can be prayed in the quietness of your mind right now. That you can simply pray, Lord, because of what you've done on the cross for me, because you humbled yourself, you died for my sins, I ask that you forgive me of all my sins. Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. That's, that's the way a relationship with God begins. If you want to pray that prayer and you'd like somebody to agree with you, we'd love to talk to you after the service. If you've prayed that prayer in the past and you haven't walked a journey with someone, we'd love to walk alongside you in the decision that you've made. For others of us this morning, we have to consider the application a little bit differently. If you say this morning, well, I am a Christ follower. Like, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. So I want to ask you, how's your marriage if you're married this morning? Because relational rifts affect our relationship with Christ. So maybe this morning we have to contemplate, am I exclusively my spouse's? Or have I begun to worship something else? Have I allowed something else to take priority in my life? Or can I say with confidence, I'm exclusively theirs? Do you have to go to a, a place where maybe you have to humble yourself to a friend, a coworker, a family member? Have you misrepresented Christ in some way? And does it require some humility to be able to repair a relationship so you can speak truth? I don't know what the application is for you this morning, but I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is revealing that to you as I even go through options that maybe there's something that you're even like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about it. It can't possibly be that, God, please. We have to humble ourselves because God wants us to live the life that he intended and that requires humility. For others of you this morning, you might say, listen, I'm, I'm a committed Christ follower and I live all the time considering humility and, and walking in that. And so to you, I want to challenge maybe the application is that you're on mission 
in a completely different way. That maybe you're a person of accountability for Christians struggling with how it is that they need to address humility in their lives. Or maybe it means you have to invite somebody to this gathering or to a lunch or to a dinner to be able to have a spiritual conversation about the things that actually matter in life. Again, I don't know what it looks like, but I know the text requires something from us. And if you leave this place saying, hmm, I attended church, who cares? Me and my wife as lead pastors here, like we don't want to create an environment where people just come and attend and like, I feel good. I laughed a little, cried a little. Worship was awesome. See you next week. I want the truth of the text to impact and saturate every aspect of our lives so that we can leave this place living differently, living to the fullest, that we'd walk in the the vision, the God-given vision for our lives so that we don't settle for a lesser version of our one and only lives, that when we deconstruct everything, we find Christ in the center. We live life to the fullest. So I ask if you would just bow your heads for a moment. You can close your eyes or keep them open. I don't know if you'll be distracted and start thinking of other things if you close your eyes, but with every head bowed, just so you're not distracted, I want you to consider what the application looks like as we go into a time of response. And respond in song. Let's consider what it is that God's asking us to do. Lord, we come before you this morning and we humble ourselves, not because of our efforts, but because of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts. That as we consider ourselves submitting to your authority and the implications of what that might look like, Lord, I pray that that you would give us clear next steps, things to wrestle with as we contemplate that application question of how it is that we're exemplifying your character, your humility. Lord, would you help us to be individuals that become fluent in the gospel, that are able to speak that not only over situations in our lives, but over our kids, over our friends, over our family members. Not in some weird, hyper-Christian way, Lord, but in in a practical, God-honoring, clear-representing way bring you glory. So we worship you this morning. We assign worth to you. We humble ourselves and we sing songs of praise and worship because you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise.